Mm. Well, let's turn, if you would, to the Word of God. And I'm going to read you something from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Big welcome to those who are watching online. I hope that you follow along, that the Scriptures uh, speak to you today as we, as we uh, come around God's Word. Paul writes this letter to the church, and I believe this is a warning to the Christian church for today. Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. An uplifting scripture to begin this morning's message. Who is Paul writing to? Well, you know that because the heading is on the page or at the top of your screen if you're following it. It's the letter to the Galatians, the church in Galatia. And Paul and Barnabas went out on a missions trip. They were sent out. And you can read that. Your homework is to read that in Acts chapter 13. They were sent off by the church in Antioch, and they said, go and let people know about Jesus. And in that first trip, you can read that they went up into Galatia, which is kind of like, sort of like Turkey. And if we just have a quick look in Acts chapter 13, because I want you to understand why is Paul saying this? Because it sounds, if you look at it, it sounds a bit rough. And it's about to get rougher. But in Acts chapter 13 and 14, you see Paul and Barnabas and their team, they go on this missions trip. But I want you to also see that it wasn't plain sailing for them while they were there. When they, when they come into, um, into this area, there's several cities that they come to. We can see them. But have a look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 44. It says on the... Welcome, Simon. Simon loves to come to church and worship God. You are welcome, buddy. Miss the music. He hates it when he misses the music. It's okay, Simon. You enjoy what God is saying. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. And they opposed the things that were spoken by Paul. So here we have Paul going in to share the message of Jesus. And the locals are like, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. And they opposed them and they blasphemed them. Verse 45, it says they spoke against them and they opposed him. And you could also see in, verse, in chapter 14 that they went on from that city and, the, and it says, and look, in, in Acts 14 and verse 1, look at this. It happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue and so spoke a great multitude of the Jews and the Greeks. So it happened again. They went down to Iconium and the same tactics, the same distortion, the same diversion happened again. It, it says that they rose up against them. They rose up against them and they would say, these people are not speaking the truth. This is the audience that Paul is writing to in this letter. 
the people that he came to and just shared the message of Jesus, and yet they were living in this, in this, in this region where there was just tension and opposition. And many years later, it's probably, um, or actually I can't remember, several years later, Paul writes them a letter and he says, what is going on? I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting that message that I shared with you, the gospel. But it gets a little bit harsher. If you want to have a look at Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of law or by the hearing of faith? And in this place, in these cities, in this region, there's Iconium and there's Lystra and there's Derby. He'd gone and he'd been opposed and in one city they tried to kill him. And he's like, guys, you fools. How would you fall away so quickly? And I want to speak to this concept this morning because even in today, some 2,000 years later, there's a tension in the world. And the tension in the world is that we would be diverted from truth. And so today's message I want to share with you is called the risk of diversion. When Paul was with the Galatians, they believed what he had to share. It says many, many turned to Jesus Christ as a result of the preaching of Paul and the, and the way that they demonstrated Jesus Christ in their midst. But not long after that, when Paul was gone, he writes them a letter and goes, man, I've heard about you guys. You've been diverted away from the truth. And the truth is, today, diversion is a massive risk, not just outside the church, where we can say, well, those people are deceived. They don't yet know the truth. No, no. Paul's writing to the Christian church. Paul's writing to us as his church, that we would understand there's a risk of diversion for us and the Christian church is going through a shake-up at the moment. Some would say, well, it's just COVID. You know, we've got to relearn life because, well, I mean, in New Zealand we can gather like this, but not many other nations can. Even as close as Victoria, you know, new lockdown. The UK, massive lockdown. US, limited numbers. It's not about COVID. It's about what God wants to do in the church. He wants to speak to the church and say, look, you've got to stop performing out your faith and start prostrating yourself before me because that's what church looks like. If you read the context of what he says in Galatians chapter 3, he's saying, who would say you would have to circumcise yourself again to be accepted by God? That is not the truth that I preach to you under Jesus Christ. And the thing about deception is when you're deceived, you don't realize... You're deceived. Or if you think you're on the right path, but you've been diverted by one degree, how many know the longer you walk off course, the further away you get from the true path? There's a risk of diversion. The Lord spoke to me about this recently. Um, and, uh, you know, as a leader, I think I've shared this with you before, I'll say it again. As a leader, people look to you for answers to problems or questions they have that they can't solve themselves. 
and, uh, and, and, and leading the church. We've got to come together as eldership and we've got to make decisions about where God is leading us and what he would have us walk into. And I've been guilty of saying, man, if only I could just find the answer. If only I had the silver bullet, the solution, God's answer for this season for our people. And the Lord really corrected me, lovingly as a father does. He chastised me in a loving way and he said, looking for a solution sometimes means that you lack faith. Because sometimes the best answer we can have is to allow God's process to work in us and through us and around us. I mean, how many times in the Old Testament did God's people try and re-establish protocol in order to speed things up? And God punished them for it. Why? Lack of faith. Galatians 3. What you are doing will not earn you the credit of righteousness. Your faith will. You foolish Galatians. There's a risk of diversion. That even we would walk away from the path God had for us and therefore walk away from his process. It's true in the church more than it's true in the world. And I want to speak to that today. I want to speak about what I see are as key risks of diversion, key diversions that are prevalent in this culture in this day and age. And I hope I don't bore you with the research, but the reality is it's a risk for all of us. Because we live in this place called earth, we're not yet in heaven. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet. And in theology terms, that means that Jesus Christ has made it all available, but we might not walk in it all. Is there complete healing in the fullness of Jesus Christ and his, his death on the cross? 100% I agree with that. Do people still get sick and die? Yes. Why? It's just not the fullness of the kingdom of God yet in our midst. Does everybody believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? No. Do you, do you get fully, completely healed emotionally, spiritually, and physically the moment you receive Jesus as your Savior? No. Why? Because God's got a process for you. So we live in this tension. And because of the nature of mankind, because of the fallen nature of mankind that had to be redeemed, there's a constant gravitational pull that pulls us away from God's reality. And the truth is, we're probably not focused on God's reality as much as we should be. In 1940, a man who you may have heard of wrote this in a book called Mere Christianity. His name is C.S. Lewis. He writes, if you read history, you'll find the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most about the next world. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective, ineffective in this world. C.S. Lewis writes, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you get neither. 1940, he wrote that. So today I want to just point to this culture of earth that tries to drag us away from the reality of heaven. 
There's a gravitational pull. It's the sin nature of humankind that's not yet 100% completely redeemed in the fullness of Christ. And you can see it on the screen there. I hope you can see it at home. I've got this propensity to avoid God. Remember, Paul's, in the book of Galatians, Paul's writing to the church. There's a search for relevance, search for acceptance, and a growing nature that's exposing what we call self-actualization. That is me discovering who I am and becoming a better me on my own. Self-improvement by self-effort. Commentators for hundreds of years have been talking about what's called the religion of me. It's prevalent in culture, and I want to point to it today. The religion of me has a fear of commitment to others for fear of me not being served in the best possible way. It's a desire that I might shine the best, shiny version of myself in the best, easiest path possible, which often denies God's path and God's process, and it certainly denies God's lordship. If it's to be, it's up to me. I want to find my best life. People often tweet or post on Facebook. But God is absent in that usually. This is the pull away. Now in the early church, we have a contrast. We can see the contrast here in Acts chapter 4. And I've been speaking out of the beginning of the book of Acts the last few weeks because we've just been going backwards and forwards and reading and praying through it. And I love the, the community that was created in the beginning in the early church and the new church as, as Jesus Christ we spoke of weeks ago had promised the Father would send empowerment from on high. And empowerment for what reason? And as they gathered and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the message of Jesus Christ was proclaimed, Jerusalem was transformed. But it wasn't to be contained in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, you can see the references on the screen. Acts chapter 4, in the first four verses, you can see that they came under persecution. Peter and John were um, caught up in the, in the uh, rulers of the city, and they said, Look, you, what have you done to create this disruption from our normal? And they, were, they pulled them in. It was almost like, a, uh, we're going to arrest you. We haven't charged you, but we're going to arrest you. And you're going to come under our authority. And we, we want to say that you shouldn't do this. Look at verse 10. Let it be known. And all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God raised up. By him, this man stands here before you. That was the testimony on their hearts. Regardless of what happened around them, regardless of what they were told, regardless of the controls or the pull away, the Jewish Sanhedrin wanted them to deny resurrection because it wasn't in line with their beliefs. They wanted to stop this message because it was pulling people out of their tradition. And Peter says, you, no way. Look at this, what's quoted on the screen. Whether it's right or wrong before God to obey you, you decide. For it is impossible for us not to speak about what we've seen or heard. This is the contrast, the example of who we are called to be. I want you to observe three things I've written here. Firstly, persecution, suffering, or hard times are normal for believers. 
I preached on that in December last year. You can go and find it. It's part of the Church Without Walls series. Secondly, at all times, we must lift up the name of Jesus. And I'm going to talk about that today. Not just with words, but with our lives. Demonstration of who Jesus is. And thirdly, as Peter and John did, we must risk, we must, we must, sorry, we must resist the force of diversion that would come against us from culture. You actually have to stand firm in faith and resist what's happening around you. These guys were under persecution. They were called in, they were arrested, they were told not to do what Jesus had asked them to do. There was a huge risk there. They could have said, oh, actually, yeah, probably we should turn it down a bit. Maybe we should be a bit more seeker-friendly. Maybe we should make our gatherings a bit safer for those that don't know Jesus yet. Maybe we could have something that's a bit more attractional. Maybe we could put on good coffee and food and make visitors feel like not threatened. Yeah, good point. Let's, let's do church that way. Let's not talk about Jesus dying because that's horrible because you did it to him. But let's talk about something a little bit more PC. I didn't read that in the book of Acts. Tom prayed out of Acts chapter 4 in our prayer meeting this morning and he, 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 he prayed through the passage in Acts 4 where they were praising God for what he had established through the prophet David and then through Jesus Christ. And I just want you to notice in verse 29 to 31, this is their prayer and may this be your prayer. I didn't add this to the screen, I just added it this morning. Now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that's his God's hand, to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus Christ. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. This is the fruit of, when we come under the Lordship of Christ and we say we won't be pulled aside, we won't be diverted by culture, we won't be weak in the, in the presence of persecution, but we will stand and proclaim Jesus Christ. Three things that I observe just in those verses. Firstly, it's really important to praise God in the midst of uncertainty. Remember when Paul and Silas were in prison, in the dungeon, with the rats, with no hope? What were they doing in the middle of the night? Worshipping, praising. Secondly, we must earnestly desire to see more of God's power in our midst. Please do not limit God by your current experience of what's happening in your world. If your faith is limited to your current experience of God, then you're missing what God might want to do tomorrow. We should always hunger and desire for more. We should always desire to see God move in us and through us. We should always desire to have a conversation with someone that leads them to go, well, well how has Jesus changed your life then? always desire to see God's power in our midst. And finally, just out of this passage, one of the things that just struck me this week, again this morning, was prayer is what brings God's power. A praying church is, what sees, is who sees God's power. So in our day, I would say the risk of diversion is very high. But praise God for his word, which gives us an example of how we could live. But what of the diversion? I just want to point to two risks today, just two. We could speak all day on what 
on the degradation of society and talk about some of the theories that are going around, but I just want to talk about two. I want to quote some research, and I'm going to leave it for you to judge yourself. Please don't judge others. You're not qualified. None of us are. Just judge yourself. The first one is what's called individualism. There's been talk for many, many years, 50 years or more, of what we call a postmodern society. And a postmodern society is one who promotes truth as relevant to themselves. What's true for me is what defines my life. What's true for me is what defines my decisions. I will decide what is true and I will act on that basis. I will not accept you telling me what is true. I will not accept the Bible as the ultimate truth. I will define which parts of it, if any, I decide are true. What is true for me dictates my decisions. But interestingly, you'll notice on the screen I put there that post-Christian culture inside the church. How can you have a post-Christian culture inside the church? Well, a post-Christian culture is nutted down in one simple sentence, the absence of the fear of the Lord. No reverence, no awe. We perform... We just don't prostrate ourselves. Pastor Mark Sayers writes this in his book called The Disappearing Church. What we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind or the Western church, but rather the enthroning of self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. We see contemporary culture is shaped by an ancient heresy, Gnosticism. Gnosticism at its heart is an alternate gospel, which is moving the authority from God to the self in which the individual seeks to power their own development of their own salvation. That is, I will work out my salvation. Historian and culture study guy, um, his name's Eric, and I can't say his last name, um, he observes that this Gnosticism is a heresy that sprung up, and he observes it in the, is in the early church as early as the, the third century. But he says Gnosticism is a parasite in the church, as cultural Christians wish for a version of belief that is less dependent on faith and submission and more on the individual's personal control. I will accept this as long as I can control it. If I'm out of control, that makes me feel unsafe, therefore I will not allow that. And this diversion is subtle, because culture promotes it. Your feelings are real, but they're not the Lord of your life. And I say that carefully. I'm not trying to diminish the emotional reality that some people walk through. For me, what I'm trying to work out is how do I yield even my feelings to the Lordship of Christ and his truth? Because the division is subtle. And the key in this individualism is the rejection of God as the ultimate authority in your life. Tozer, A.W. Tozer says... Christ is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. It's black and white. Grey, not accepted. 
it's gone a bit quiet. Second, the second risk I've called isolation. And this is massive. And it's made worse by what we've experienced the last 12 months. I think it's only accentuated and highlighted what's always been a problem, certainly in the last 10 to 12 years. Individualism says, or isolation says, I would rather be comfortable than follow my calling. I would rather have satisfaction instead of suffering. I will deny authority. In almost all instances, I prefer individual autonomy. I will withdraw myself to the place where I can be in control. Now, sometimes isolation is good for safety. COVID was a classic example of that. But when isolation leads to disconnection, it's unhealthy, and I believe ungodly. Cultural writers say this, there's a desire for community, but what trumps that is the desire for autonomy. I want to be connected, but on my terms. And this leads us to what's called a social posture of disengagement. You know, as a church, sometimes the honest truth is, I'll be real honest, we struggle to get volunteers. And I'm like, man, what's with that? And then we were talking, Kathy and I were talking to someone in the community recently hosting a school event, massive school in Te Aumuru, and they got three volunteers for an event. I'm like, ah, it's not just the church, it's culture. And, and what makes it worse, and this is why I say it's become more prevalent in the last 12 to 15 years, is that social media tricks us into thinking we're connected. This guy here, his name's Jaron Lanier, he says, we believe we've accumulated thousands of friends. This can only be true if the idea of friendship is reduced. You see, I, I, I deceived myself this week because I sent Michael a social media message to congratulate him on the birth of their son. And I deceived myself that I had reached out and supported him and his family. And for that, I had to repent. Not, I'm, not, I'm now repenting to Michael, but I repented before the Lord. It's not connection. It's not friendship. It's not love. It's nice. But it's not a replacement. Social networking and other forms of pseudo-community fill spaces where we used to touch others. Social media is not bad. It's only bad when it replaces community. Trick ourselves into isolation. We choose not to gather because we think we're already connected. I would say this to you. There's a deception that is real in the church at the moment where believers think they can follow their life of faith and not be connected to the body of Christ. And I have not found any biblical evidence of that being true. At all. I can find evidence in the world of it going really poorly for people. It's deception. It's diversion. And it's pulling people away from God's desire for their lives. People say they love church and yet they choose other activities as a priority. Last year I quoted you evidence from research that is done late last year that people, Christians, attend church on average 1.2 times a month. Many Christians attend church 10 times a year. 
People that attend church 10 times a year still believe they're an active and valued member of a church community. That has become normal worldwide. Isolation. Isolation is diversion from God's intended plan for community. Would a hand be any use if it was cut off from the body? I had this conversation honestly with a friend recently. He's like, man, my life, my, my life of faith has never been so rich. I'm like, so what? You sit at home and don't talk to anyone except Jesus. How is that helping you to be a light to this community or to contribute to the body of Christ? You're not doing any good. Church family is about where God plants you. Paul writes in Romans 11, you're grafted in by the gardener, not by your preference, not by your comfort, not by your, your feelings. You're grafted into God's body, which means the gardener grafts you into a branch and it becomes permanent. Does that mean people shouldn't leave church and go to another church? I'm not saying that. But let it be said that the gardener makes that decision, not you. Um, the denial of authority is something that's really interesting, and I have to be careful when I speak about this because as a church leader, I could be accused of self-promotion by what I'm about to say. So please understand that I have tried to prepare my heart in the best possible way to say that the rejection and the denial of godly authority in the church is killing the church. Am I looking for a bigger stage? No. Do I want you to worship me? No. But the lack of honour of God's appointed leaders in the Christian church today is destroying the church. And it's real in Tiamuru. Last year, at the end of last year, one of the accusations that came against me was labelled man of God syndrome. The very fact that that phrase was used proved the accusation was unbiblical. Maybe next week, I will preach out of Acts chapter 5. You know what happens in Acts chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira come before God's appointed leaders of the church. And Peter says to Sapphira, the men who carried your, bot, your husband's corpse away to bury it, their footsteps return for yours, and she drops dead. I think God's got a pattern which includes honour, submission, and authority. And part of our journey is to work what that is, work out what that is. And I include myself in that too. Isolation is a risk, and it's killing our life of faith. So we've got to take a biblical response, a faith-based response. We've got to rethink how do we live together in community? And just two simple thoughts to point to Scripture, and then I'll let you decide what you do with it. The first one I've called incorporation. So in reading books around modern church and culture and how do we be church, not just do church, one of the themes that comes through is this idea of incorporation. Now, by incorporation, I mean coming together. 
In the beginning of the book of Acts, you can see the reference there, Acts chapter 2. The end of Acts chapter 2 and right through 3 and 4 and 5 is a brilliant picture of the early church coming together and incorporating themselves and connecting themselves to one another. They were connected, they were committed, there was cooperation, and there was even covenant. The best picture that I could think of was marriage, which is often referred to as a covenant. And the Lord reminded me of the concept this week with regard to covenant, and he said, son, do you remember that you cannot fulfill your side of our covenant? I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, that's what the Galatians were trying to do. He goes, you, no matter how good you are, you can't fulfill your side of our deal. And then this morning as I was praying through this message, he's like, oh, and marriage is the same too. In marriage, you're not good enough to do your side of that relationship. And if you think like that, your marriage might stay healthy. Church is the same. None of us are perfect. None of us can actually stand in the strength we need to fulfill our side of our deal together. It's only by the grace of Jesus Christ that we walk together. And if we remember that, then his grace covers how we live in order not that we would abuse one another, that we would accept one another. And the question is, what are we incorporated into? And the short answer I've got for you without preaching another sermon is the Father's mission. The key phrase that I've taken for this series is from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before all men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know how they used to guide themselves when traveling at night in the Middle East? was they would see the lights on a hill and know that a city was there for their safety. Not one light, the collective light. Incorporated. We're incorporated into the Father's mission together. And in that, I find my second response. Incarnation. Incarnation is the key word. What does that mean? It means to give body to, to give flesh to, to make something real. Jesus was God, is God, became flesh, was incarnated into flesh. I'm flipping that on its head and saying our responsibility, our response in faith is to reincarnate our faith as in let's put some flesh on it. We are called as sons and daughters of God. We are grafted into his family. We're embraced as sons. We're royalty in his kingdom. And in such, we should represent his kingdom well. Let your light shine before all men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's represent him. But what about in the cafe or in the school or in your marriage? You should represent Christ that you would embody Christ, that you would become like Christ, that what people see is Christ and his nature in you. 
That's what it means for incarnation. If we're disciples of Jesus, that means we're supposed to become like Jesus. We're supposed to walk in his footsteps. Him is our rabbi, our teacher, our example, and we follow him. Jim Peterson says in his book called Church Without Walls, he says we are to be an undeniable validation of the truth. And that's a high standard. We are to be an undeniable validation of the truth. Flip. Oh, I can't measure up to that. Not good enough, I'm sorry. And then he says this. He says whilst we're to do that, we're not demanded to demonstrate perfection. In fact, just the truth of Jesus. He says there's probably greater power in being truthful about one's imperfections. True connection and community is forged through vulnerability. Vulnerability happens is when you admit your imperfections to one another. Confess your sins before one another, the Bible actually says. Not in a public forum like this, but in a one-to-one or one-to-few relationship. Vulnerability. But in that vulnerability, I find the grace of Jesus Christ calms and strengthens me in order that I would represent him in the next conversation I have. To be incarnated means to represent Christ. We read this in, in, the, in the book of Acts, and I've got the references on the screen. If you're not seeing them, it's Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. Look for the incorporation, the coming together. Look for the incarnation in the scripture, the representation of Jesus Christ. So how should we do that? In Acts chapter 2, I just love the uh, response of the people. And uh, I'll let you see it on the screen as well. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Peter preaches this message. I love the response of the crowd. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Was that because he was being a bit rough, harsh, spoke harshly, criticised them? No, he spoke truth. Truth brings conviction. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? So I thought that would be our good response. And, and, and as you pray through this message, as you read the scriptures for yourself, and as you look at yourself in the mirror of the Holy Spirit, perhaps you might ask him, what should I do? Just two simple things. One, pray with others. Last week's message was all about prayer is, the one, is what best prepares us for the promise of the Father. Go back and listen to that again. It's on YouTube. It's on the app. You can download all our messages and listen to them in the car. You'll find it, last week's message there, with the slides included on the app. And I called the church to prayer, and I continue to call the church to prayer. A praying church will see more of God's power. We have three church prayer meetings every week. And you're invited to join any one of them or all of them. Sunday morning, this morning, we gathered at 9 o'clock here. We prayed for 45 minutes for you, for the town, and for our nation. Monday nights at 7 p.m., we gather on Zoom, online, prayer room. We've been doing it since lockdown 1.0. 
And if you don't know how to use Zoom, come and see me or find a teenager. Join the uh, Zion family on Facebook and we put the link in there and you can join in on your phone or on your computer. Maybe that doesn't work for you. It's okay, that's why we have a meeting here at 9 o'clock on Sundays. We also gather at 7 a.m. on Zoom and we pray scripture. Invite you to join us. The second response, I'm calling cooperate with others. In Acts chapter 2, we see the brilliant submission and yielding of every single person to the community of faith for the greater good of the community of faith. I'm not asking you to bring your possessions in so we can share them. I'm just asking you to commit yourself to cooperation one with each other. All who believe were together had all things in common. One good example that I looked into this week is the example of um, what we call connect groups. Connect groups, life groups, home groups, fellowship groups, whatever you want to call them. Gathering together during the week with one another, gathering together for a meal, gathering together for a walk, gathering together for a Bible study, gathering together for a song. Just gather together. Have church with one another. Not, remember, church is not a meeting, it's not a building, and it's not a 10 o'clock gathering. Church is when two or three people get together with Jesus in their midst. Connect groups are a great way to do that. One of the research papers I read this week around this um, gave some evidence of a church that um, is reportedly doing it well. And I shared it with the elders because I want to discuss it more. But just two thoughts as I close. Two thoughts about what these guys say in this church about their connect groups. The first one is they say this. It's not just a Bible study. Each group is driven by their own mission. And I was like, well, what does that mean? That means a group of people get together with common purpose in order to represent the love of Jesus Christ to their community. They have an outward-focused mission. They want to serve their street, or they want to serve a sector of society. They want to serve a need. They have their own mission, and it's outward-focused, not inward-focused. And every group can have a different mission as long as it aligns with the mission of the Father, let your light shine before all men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This church is not trying to become a famous church. But this church, as in the body, the people, are making Jesus famous by what they do. Hmm. Hmm. I thought to myself, hmm. Secondly, distributed leadership and ownership. In this group, which is quite structured, and they do training and discipleship, which all of which is available for us. They have three types of leaders in their connect groups. They actually call them city groups, but they have three types of leaders, up leaders. An up leader helps the individuals in the group connect with God. Spiritual maturity, liberty, and growth. That's an upward leader. Someone that loves to expound the word of God and pray with people to see them find freedom and wholeness, strength, faith. They also have an in-leader, and an in-leader helps bring people in and help them to feel welcome. They're the ones with the gifts of hospitality and care and pastoral-hearted. Because often the ones that are focused on the word of God and discipling people and making them stronger aren't the ones graced with the gift of hospitality and pastoral care. And they also recognize the need for an out leader, someone that is passionate, 
about the mission and taking people on mission. Hey, come on, let's go and let's love our street. Let's drop flyers and offer to mow lawns for the people in our street, you know. Come on, let's go out, let's go out, let's go out. Let's take what we have and share it with others. Hmm, I thought to myself, that's a good idea. So I'll leave that with you. The church without walls is a church that fights and resists the diversion that is like a gravitational pull that seeks to distract us and divert us away from God's path and God's purpose and God's best for us. That fights the drag and the pull of society and culture that would promote individualism and isolation and instead the church stands together to strengthen one another that we would be incorporated together as one that we would be the incarnation of Christ meaning we would represent Christ to those around us let me pray almighty God I submit every single word of what I've shared this morning to you and I pray I'm so thankful that your Holy Spirit brings the truth to our hearts in a way that we need to hear it. So for each one hearing this message today and in the future, God, I know, I'm confident, I have faith that your Holy Spirit is going to do work in our hearts. May your truth prevail. Lord, when we are weak, may we find strength in you and each other. Lord, I pray for the church that corporately, together in this nation, the church of Jesus Christ would become stronger in order that we would present people the message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, his love, his grace, and his mercy, and that when we yield ourselves to that, we find a cooperative partnership with him that enables us to be the church without walls, that the message of Jesus Christ would go forth into this nation. Father, I bless each one here today that's with us in body and online. I bless them, God, that they would know that you are their friend, that you are leading them on a process and a pathway to, in order to see your purposes come to pass. And Lord, we submit to your timing, we submit to your pathway and the process that you have us on that truly your work would be done in each of our lives. Bless them as they go. In Jesus' name, amen.